You know, when God made humans, He made them, us, in His image. That doesn't mean that God looks like a human being, two arms, two legs. That's not really the picture we're given. The idea, rather, that is conveyed through that idea, being made in God's image, is that we are made in His likeness in terms of who He is, His attributes and His character. That means, then, a component of this is that at the beginning, human beings were made good. We were made to be sinless. Somewhere along the way, most likely shortly after our first breaths as human beings, we chose, well, we chose a different path than God's design. We chose to live contrary to God's design. We chose instead to be our own gods. Not God like God, a, a little g, God. We chose to set our own course. Now, there's places in life where that's a good thing, but in this instance, in this case, Setting our own path, choosing our own path, our own course, it was disastrous. It led to our own downfall, our own ruin. It resulted in our separation from God, from the love and the goodness of God that we had enjoyed prior to that new choice. Throughout time, throughout history, and even in our own lives, we can see this to be true, that we human beings... We have continually chosen that lesser path. This lesser path, well, it's, it's kind of full of all sorts of stuff, isn't it? Our lives, we know this to be true. It's full, full of both good and bad. It's full of striving and joy. It's full of conflict and community. It's full of pain and comfort. There are times that we are the ones who are bringing the good into other people's lives. Sometimes we're bringing the bad. Other times, those things come from other people. Sometimes the bad comes from the enemy of our soul, Satan. But we know that this life is full of both. We've been looking at that as we've been moving through 1 Peter. For our part, though, each time that we bring the bad to the table, what we're doing is we are adding baggage to ourselves and to others. At times, that that baggage is in the form of maybe sinful behaviors, sinful attitudes, sinful actions. Other times, they're not sinful, but they are destructive. They, they are behaviors that form into habits that can often lead to sin. Whichever they are, they're excess weight for us to carry. They are, to go to the idea of this of what the series we're moving through, they are the dross that pollutes us. I, I, I thought dross was a word everybody understood until this past week. And, and Nancy asked me, so what is dross? I have no clue. Is that a misspelling? Dross is, it's the impurities found within a metal. So in, in, in some cases, it may be an impurity in a metal that causes the metal to be extra brittle. You know, imagine a nail that you hit and it just shatters. There's too many impurities in there. It's it's made the wrong way. Or maybe it's an impurity that causes something, a metal that should be rigid to be flexible when it shouldn't be. In terms of precious metals, say gold or silver, that dross, that, those impurities, they devalue the metal. They make it of less value because it's not a pure gold or a pure silver. It's the junk that contaminates and pollutes. As long as we hold on to that dross in our own lives, 
those habits and behaviors that are not according to God's design, as long as we hold on to those things, we then will always be struggling in our faith more so than what we should be. We'll end up missing out on that, that, that joy that um, Peter talked about, that inexpressible and glorious joy that we talked about last week. We will be held in bondage to that stuff. But we all want and we know we need the freedom from that dross. Freedom from that bondage. Freedom from that baggage that we can end up carrying in our lives. We need to be refined. Now our section today that we're looking at in 1 Peter, uh, 1 Peter 1, 13-16, I'll get there in a second, it starts with the word therefore. Now if you've been around here long enough to hear me preaching, whenever you hear that word therefore, you will automatically should be thinking, you should always ask what the therefore is there for. Because it's always pointing to something. That word therefore is always there to help us understand something. In this case, usually, wherever you find the word therefore in Scripture, or anywhere else for that matter, in any writing, usually if you look at the context, the, the, the sentences around that word, you can usually discover pretty easily what it's pointing at, what it's meaning. Now in this case, What's happening here is it's indicating a change of topic. He's been talking about this topic, and now he's connecting that to this next section. Because of that, you now have this. It's as if you could almost say, then Peter is saying, if we want to be refined by the fires of life, because remember we talked about this last week, we have the choice. Be burned by the fires of life or purified by them. So if we want to be refined or purified by the fires of life, Peter says, do these things. So let's jump in there. Starting in verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, that is referring to before you came to Christ, but just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. See, in light of the realities of the difficulties of life, Peter seems to be giving here instructions on how it is then that we ought to live. And here, he lays out what our life is to look like as we go through those fires. Kind of even giving us instructions to be prepared ahead of time. He's already talked about the importance of of being purified by the fires of life. That's so far what we've been talking about in our series. And we've looked at how it is that we are to work with God as we go through them in the previous two messages. But now, Peter makes that shift. And he, he starts his explanation of what the Christian life looks like at all times. Both in the fires and outside them. He's talking about the refining process and how it is that we participate in it for our own good, as well as the good of the church. He's talking about holiness. He said the word to be holy in all we do. You see, God expects that those who are His will strive to be like Him. Christianity, you see, isn't about just coming to church. That is not Christianity. You are not a Christian because you go to church. You go to church because you are a Christian. To join with other believers. To worship God with other believers. To encourage other believers. To 
fulfill the mission that Christ has given us. See, Christianity is instead about loving God enough to model our life after Him. And holiness is a nice churchy word, isn't it? We don't, rare, we don't often use it outside of church. Oh yes, you can find it here and there. But generally speaking, it's found within the context of the church. generally then, makes me wonder, maybe we have a wrong perspective of this word holiness or holy. I wonder if most people might associate it with maybe perfection. As if a person who is holy is somebody who is sinless, perfect in everything that they do. Or maybe we take those who are holy, they are the the super Christians. They're the ones who've got it all together. Or maybe they're the you know, Mother Teresa's and Billy Graham's of society. They're the holy people. And only those kinds of people can become holy. But not us average Joes. The holiness is about a choice on our part. A choice to live differently. And while it is completely true, and we're going to get more into this over the next couple of weeks, while it is completely true that there is a component of the idea of holiness, that it is something that God does for us. We are made holy because of our faith in Christ. Something God does. But there is also contained within this word the idea of choosing, on our part, choosing to live differently. It's a choice we have to make. Choosing to live differently from how we were before we came to Christ. Choosing to live differently than everybody around us, the world around us. You see, holiness is about a life lived Godward. Here's the great part. Holiness is about that good stuff that deep down inside we really want anyway. You know how when something, somebody does something to you that you know was wrong? We don't want that stuff. Even if we may end up doing the very same thing to somebody else, we know that was wrong. We don't want it done to us. Holiness is about doing that good stuff that we know we are, we are supposed to do. And other people doing the good stuff back toward us. To live a holy life is to live how God created us to live. It's about loving God, loving others, and being loved by others. It's about living a life without regret. It's also about letting go of that baggage that holds us back, that dross that creates the impurities. It's about finding freedom to live fully for Christ. It's about the junk of life being purified out of us. It's about us being refined. Holiness is a life lived Godward. And it is important that we understand that holiness is not a destination. It is not that we will become holy in this life. But it is rather, it is a journey toward or in the direction of It is a life lived Godward. That is part of what holiness is. It's a daily thing. A moment by moment thing. The decision on our part to live a more Christ-like life. It's about obedience to God and all all that we are, all that we feel, all that we think, every part of us. Obedience to God. How do we get the life that Peter challenged his readers to have? Well, I'm going to focus primarily this morning on just this first part 
with less attention on the other two. Because this is kind of the cornerstone for not only today's message, but the next two messages as well. It begins with a life lived Godward that starts with a prepared mind. See, first, Peter challenges readers to have a mind that is alert. Some of your translations may have the phrase, to gird up your loins. I know when I first came to Christ and I was reading the New King James Bible at that time, and that phrase was in there, I had no clue what in the world that meant. That's not a phrase we use in everyday language, to gird up your loins. But you know, the idea of what was said there was something Peter's readers clearly understood. That was a practice of ancient peoples. See, it was a word picture. What, what would happen was the men often wore long, flowing robes. And while they were nice and long and flowing to try to do anything that required activity, maybe moving quickly or getting work done, it was not uncommon then for that robe to get in the way, tangle up their feet, create hindrances for them. So what the men would do is they'd reach down to the ground behind their, their feet, they'd grab the backside of that robe and pull it up and tuck it into their belt, creating these kind of like pantaloons, with that term, these, these types of pants that they wore, which then gave them the freedom to move around, to do what was necessary, to accomplish whatever it was that they needed to accomplish. When ancient Israel was being led out of Egypt, God commanded them to do that very thing. See, that night before they were led out, they were uh, led out of Egypt, they were to sacrifice a lamb and put the, the blood of its, uh, the, that lamb on the doorposts of their house so as the angel of death passed through, it would pass over their house. But they were to have girded up their loins, taken that, that robe and tucked it in, so they would be ready to move at a moment's notice. That whenever it was that God called them into action, they were to be ready without hesitation. As Christians, we're to be ready to move into action at any moment. You could almost say then that the opposite of this word carries the idea of being lazy or unprepared or simply not ready. And as Christians, Peter challenges us then to be prepared for whatever is ahead. It's also important to understand that Peter stated this in the past tense as if this is something that was already done or we already did. You see, if you are a Christ follower, you already girded up your loins. In other words, you can almost translate what's being said here as having already put aside that stuff that holds us back or entangles us or slows us down. We've already put that stuff aside. See, when we went down into the baptismal waters, we died to ourselves. At that moment when we went down there, believers, you and I, we died to all that junk that holds us back. All that stuff that keeps us from becoming all that stuff that creates problems in our lives. Having set aside all of it when you came to Christ, don't live in it anymore. See, this is something we already did. And even though we already did this, you and I know this very well. Every day we are still faced with the choice of going back to it, living in it, or living for God. See, every time that we choose sin, what we're doing is we're adding more junk into our lives. We're grabbing more baggage to carry along with us. We're adding some dross, some impurities into the purity of what God had designed. Every time, though, that we choose holiness, 
find freedom. The freedom that God planned for us to have. And Peter here challenges his readers to reign in their thoughts, to control their mind. Why? Because a mind that runs wild is a dangerous thing. I'm not talking about imagination or inspiration. I'm not talking about things like, like that. Dreaming up. Because the Bible talks about dreaming things for God or imagining what God can do. There, there's nothing inherently wrong with doing those things. Rather, what I'm talking about is that an unstructured mind accepts whatever comes its way. We have the tendency then, with an unstructured mind, to believe everything we're told. And oftentimes, to our own detriment. Comparable with, say, an unruly child who regularly disrespects and disobeys its parents. They have no concept of order or authority. They demand their own way and disregard what they're told. A good parent will train their child to respect authority, their authority, and they do that so the child will grow up to learn to follow God. Living with an unruly mind will only lead to ruin for ourselves and those around us. However, an ordered mind is what the word that's translated here is indicating. This girded up mind, this mind that is prepared in advance, it thinks things through before it reacts. This type of mind is one that seeks to understand before passing judgment. It tries as hard as it can to see things the picture from all angles, rather than just its own little world. How do we have a prepared mind? By ordering it around God's Word. By ordering it around the Bible. Regularly spending time in the Bible will give us the structure that we need to order our mind around something. And that something being what it should be ordered around. As you read the Bible, and as you, as you live as you live out what you're finding out there, the living and active Word of God, it ends up permeating your life. Getting into your soul. Changing you from the inside out. It'll reach into every part of you and help you to take your thoughts captive. It will help you to remove the dross from your life. The junk that holds you back. That stuff that entangles you in life. From that structure, based around God's Word, it will help you to make a little more sense of the world that we live in. Peter also talked about the importance of having a sober mind. It's important to understand here, never was the word that's translated as having a sober mind have anything in the New Testament, never does it have anything to do with sobriety versus drunkenness. That's not the picture. The picture instead has to do with uh, uh, having your mind ordered around something else, having a clearer mind has to do with having a clear head. One not influenced by other things. It's about the ability to see things more clearly. In other words, don't allow that stuff into your mind that will cloud your judgment. Make you blurry-eyed so you can't see the reality. Ideologies, belief systems, even desires, dreams, or even emotions can become the things in our lives that 
cloud our judgment. Those ideas, those things that don't align with Scripture, they end up taking us away from a life lived Godward. They don't allow us to do that. So, so Peter is saying here, don't live in that confused life. Be sober-minded. Ready at all times. Our not, mind needs to be fully on God as we live life. And if we fail to do this, if we fail to prepare our minds ahead of time, we are more likely to fall into sin because we haven't prepared in advance. So we need to prepare our minds ahead of time. Second, a life lived Godward includes grace. It includes grace. A word that's translated as hope there. It means to look forward with confidence to that which is good and beneficial. It's as if Peter is saying here, know that God's grace is sufficient for you. Know that. Live in it. So I would say this, if you're not a Christ follower yet, if you're not yet, you haven't chosen yet to follow Christ, know that God's grace is sufficient for even your sins. God is more than capable of forgiving you for all you've done. You are not so sinful that you are too far removed to be saved by God's grace. You just simply need to turn to Christ and accept the grace that He offers. If you are a Christian already, don't live a defeated life. Don't live in thinking that your sin disqualifies you. Again, Jesus' death on the cross paid the penalty for all of your sins. All of my sins. Past, present, and future. It doesn't give us the license to go on sinning because God's grace is there, but rather it gives us the freedom of knowing that in Christ there is now no condemnation for those who are Christ followers. But this hope is something that believers are to live in in all areas of life. So what does that look like? Well, it means that as Christians, we are to be the most grace-filled people on the planet. Churches are to be the most grace-filled places that you could ever go to. There should be no other place that you could ever find other than a church where people would be more gracious to you. Nowhere. We are to be the first to forgive others when they hurt us. We are to be the first to let go of the pain others may cause us. Not that we become doormats. I mean, whenever possible, if you're in an abusive situation, get yourself away from that. But you forgive anyway. Understand that we all fall short. We all make mistakes. We all sin. Every single one of us. So extend the same grace that you want God to give you to the people around you. And as we go through the hard times, let's be honest, all of us, sometimes we miss the mark, don't we? When life gets hard, sometimes we say, do, feel, think things that are not God-honored. Sometimes we all fall short in that area. So, live in God's grace for you even then. Remember, Jesus' death covers your sins. All of them. God knows. He knew that we can't live as human beings that perfect sinless life, that isn't a surprise to Him. So accept God's grace and move forward in it. Don't live a self-defeated life because you fell short, because you failed, because you sinned. Admit it and move on. 
move forward. Set your hope on Christ and His grace toward us and live in it in all areas of life. Finally, a life lived Godward is done by striving toward obedience to God. This is likely one of the most overlooked components within Christianity in the modern era. Likely even further back than that. I mean, we all want grace, don't we? We all want our sins forgiven. We all want to be able to get into heaven one day. But this obedience thing? Not quite so much, right? I mean, we may be, attempted, we may be tempted to approach this, this component of our faith, or maybe even faith in general. We may be tempted to approach Christianity like like a buffet. You know, we walk up to the buffet and we've got our tray there and our plate there. And, ooh, grace. <laughs> Want that? Slap some on there. Heaven, yeah. Plump, plump. A couple plops of food on there. God's love and, 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 and His mercy. Yeah, throw that on there. And then we get down to that other section talking about the obedience with all of its stuff. And we're like, can I have a smaller spoon? Can I have those you know, little tongs that are just big enough to pick up a pea? That's what I want in there. We approach that part and we're like, hmm... I don't know so much. We begin picking and choosing is what we do as Christians. We pick and choose what we want and what we don't want. I'll go to church as long as I don't have something better going on. I'll give an offering. I've got a few bucks left over if, if I don't have something I really want to get for myself. I'll serve if it'll make me feel good. I'll love others as long as they're going to love me back. I'll forgive others if they really deserve it. I'll follow my leaders as long as they do what I tell them to do. But you know, obedience to God is an all-encompassing thing. It is not a pick-and-choose thing. God calls us, Christians, He calls us to be like obedient children with Him. You can ask my kids if you want. They'll tell you the same thing. I, when they were little, I did not tolerate back-talking. I didn't tolerate disobedience. It was not allowed. I gave them a little bit of grace. and They're their kids. I got it, okay? I wasn't, you know, a, a tyrant. But that only went so far. I had high expectations on my kids. If they wanted to watch me change colors and steam to come pouring out of my ears, all they had to do was push this boundary. They had to push it until I finally said, enough. And we had an issue. You see, I understood something from shortly after Caitlin was born when I came to Christ. I began to understand that God had given me as their dad, not to mention just simply as their parent, the responsibility to teach my children about obedience for their good. The obedience was for their good. So they would better understand what it means to follow Christ. Because as a Christian, we have to obey God. And to me, to me, in regards to my children, nothing is more important than them choosing to follow Christ on their own. Nothing. That's why I have said for almost my entire time in ministry that my family is my first ministry, that if I fail there, I have failed in all areas. Because I expect that I will, I have a high expectation of myself that I am to train my children in how to obey me so they understand how to obey God. You see, God expects the same of us. Our obedience of Him. Jesus we even went on to, uh, to equate 
our love for Him and our obedience to Him. That if we love Him, we will obey Him. Just because, just because we're saved by grace, it doesn't negate our need, our requirement for obedience. We are not obedient to be saved. We are obedient because we are saved. If we choose rebellion to God's commands, I don't care whether you want to look at it as the big picture or that tiny area that we tried to grab the smallest little tongs that we could to grab out of that obedience tray of food. If we want to live in rebellion to God in any area, we have a problem on our side. We are rejecting God's lordship over our life. You see, the reality is Jesus cannot be our Lord and Savior if He is not Lord of all. So what's that look like? Well, heard me say it before a multitude of times, a couple times even this morning. But what does it look like? It must include regularly spending time in the Bible. Because that's where we hear what God has to say to us. You cannot expect to hear everything you need to hear about following, following Christ, being a Christian, from me alone. You are misled if that's what you think. What you get from me is a snippet. You have to follow Christ on your own. You have to spend time in God's Word on your own to hear what God has to say to you in that. And then, as we read the Bible, it means that as we read what it is that He has to say, we then adjust our life to match what it says there. We adjust who we are, what we want, our dreams, aspirations, emotions. Everything about us is adjusted to match what's there, not the other way around. We don't alter Scripture to match how we feel. We are not given the authority or the right to choose what we want to obey and what we don't. Instead, as Peter said here, we are to be like obedient children toward God. Do what he says. And you know, this is, this is one of those components where our faith, you know, the rubber meets the road. Where our faith is put to the test. Do we believe that God's commands are for our good? Because if, if they are, then why wouldn't we obey them? Let me tell you this, though. They are for our good. God's commands are for our good. God's commands bring us freedom from that baggage that holds us back, brings us freedom from that dross that brings the impurities into our life to cause us to be brittle or too flexible. God's commands bring the good stuff into our life that deep down we really want anyway. God's commands come without regret or remorse. God's commands are for our good and bring good to those around us. Allows the church to be that beacon of hope in our time. Obedience to God will bring about the refining of our life that we need to have done. The holiness is about a life lived Godward. So live fully for Him in all you do. Prepare your mind ahead of time. Live in the hope that we have in Christ. Strive to be obedient to His command. If you are a Christian, you have already set aside all that junk that holds you back. But maybe if you're like me, 
oftentimes you go back and pick it back up. You grab back a hold of that stuff that you knew wasn't good. You find yourself midday holding on to it yet again. So if you did, you picked up that junk that you were supposed to have set aside, put it down once more. Trust in God's grace to cover your sin. Then extend that same grace that He has given to you to those around you. And through it all, work at living an obedient life to God in all that He has called us to be and do.